every time you say a story like this, my first line is always going to be, how have we not cured cancer by now? podcast i'm your host danny paul with me as always is the vice host leon coventry leon what's up danny happy to be here how you doing man how's your week how's your week how's your I week know. oh well no, i beat you, you tell me about your week my week all right my week pretty good actually it was a great week uh, a lot of people start to to embrace the four-day weekend coming up because apparently friday is a day off for everyone okay <laughs> but me <laughs> no it's all good it was good good week you know i feel like the country's starting to turn a little bit with this covid thing people are starting to come out at least in california and we've been in lockdown for so long uh so i kind of feel it people are coming back out again and i i like that i and i'm I'm one of those people that does stock the chart on where we at on, on the COVID cases around here and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. how close am I to being able to go back and do a bar again? And because that's that's all that's important to me, apparently. Let's <laughs> understand our audience here. <laughs> so yeah, um, I, I, I kind of I like where everything's starting to head and we're starting to head closer into spring and it was a, it was a good week. How about you? So I got a voiceover gig to play Leonardo in a Ninja Turtle fan game. Stop it. And so I made some money. I got the call and I booked the gig. I recorded the demo reels and boom, if there's a Ninja Turtles video game in our future, I am the voice of Leonardo, leader of the team. How cool is that? You get you Super already cool. know the answer to that question of if you were a Ninja Turtle, which one would you be? Well, I could answer that. I was already Leonardo. That's right. That's I got amazing. Paid to be Leonardo, so I would have um, picked you as a Donatello guy, but I could see as Leonardo. I could make uh, I could make some side scratch as a guy that does impressions. That's awesome. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. All right. So, what's your brown for tonight? We talked a lot last week about the single barrel uh, craze that's been going on. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to try out the single barrel, the Jack Daniels single barrel. So Ooh. that's what I got tonight. It's uh, it's a mainstream, obviously, brand with Jack Daniels. and But this is their attempt at kicking it up a notch and uh, trying to join the upscale bourbon market. It's a very cube-shaped uh, bottle. It is. I, you know, there's no doubt that the marketing for Jack Daniels has always been outstanding. Um, I did a little bit of homework on it, and I haven't seen that many uh, positive reviews of it. Uh, but, you know, the, a lot of people drinking it are, are bourbon snobs, and um, I can't say that I'm a bourbon snob. I'm just a bourbon addict, so... Let's see. Let's see what it tastes like. I'm going on the one big cube. Ooh, wrote a song about it. Well, Tennessee whiskey. Here, here it goes. You know what it tastes like? 
tastes like a muddled down Jack Daniels. Oh, <laughs> number seven. That's what it, it uh, it's like a milder. It it definitely has the same type of notes. So uh, I tried to steam the wrinkles out of the jacket, but it's still Jack Daniels. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, if the bottle runs about 50 bucks, there's a lot of, out there I would go for before this. But it's a good looking bottle to have on your shelf. And it's a, a trusted brand. So not, I'm not unhappy I bought it, but. And that's that's why I'm excited. When when you told me we're going to do this, Danny, you're like, well, you know what? One thing we're going to have to do is you're going to have to bring a, a different bourbon or a different brown. Uh, every week and i as if that was going to scare me off uh, and and not at all i now i have an excuse to go i, I have to hun i have to get another i have to it's the show i you know it's the show i gotta have another brown so uh i thank you but my liver does not well i mean i've known your liver almost as long as i've known you so it'll get over it i am rocking the <laughs> Johnny Walker Gold 18, formerly known as Platinum Label. And as you know, Platinum is better than gold. As I am the Diageo man to your Sazerac, I have stayed within the fold of the label today. It's supposed to have up to 18 different blends aged 18 years. That to me sounds like marketing speak because up to 18 means it could be one. But uh, it's got more of a, a peatiness to it than I would say other Johnny Walkers that I'm aware of. It's not a malt, so it doesn't feel as thick on the tongue as my favorite green label does. Uh, and it's certainly not as smoky as Johnny Black. So of the Johnnies, I would I would rate it up there because I would take a Johnny Red feel before like Johnny Black myself. You would rate above that. I, I feel like any you blend anything 18, 18 different plants to me I think you've just overshot it. It's like, it's like the shredded cheese bag. It's like, this has 19 different cheeses. Three would have been okay. I mean, I really can't pick up the notes of the uh, 10 cheeses that are in there, but sure. It makes it fancier, I guess. I think you make a good argument. Maybe this is the, maybe this is the dog pound scotch. Just give me the mutt that the guy caught in the neighborhood and brought back and threw in a cage. Oh, I, I get the same feeling like, oh, what's left over? Oh, we got 19 barrels with some of the leftover junk in there. Pour <laughs> yeah. through some charcoal and sell it, sell it to some unsuspecting scotch. A, it's like that scene Lark. in Goodfellas. What am I supposed to do with coats? It's the middle of July. Well, you don't want the coats? I'll take the coat. No, no, I want them. We'll put them in the freezer. We'll throw them by the meat. There we go. <laughs> 18 Hello. different blends. You can, really, you can really pick up the last two, the last two blends. That's really the nose to your tasting. It's got a nice nose to it. I mean, it's it's mellow. It doesn't burn its way down. There's no hug uh, that you've had with some other brands. So I, I like it. I mean, it's. I usually try and find bottles that are somewhere between the 40 and 60 range. Occasionally, I'll go up. Like last episode was the uh, Jefferson Ocean. That was a pretty hefty bottle. I don't know that I need that kind of price point for something that's a regular drinker. I've got special bottles that I'm not going to open. I, I spend money on those. But for, for something that you're going to have on a regular basis, it's, I don't know, it's, I don't want to go too low, but I don't need to go that high. Like I got $7 bottles of wine that are really good. So I want to tell you about uh, the wonderful woman that I've married and her idea 
for this week's Valentine's celebration. It's actually a valiversary for me, oh, as you know, because uh, you you were there Very nice. uh, when we got married. The Her idea was to go out and buy two additional bottles of brown and for our valiversary dinner we will we have um the little sifter glasses mm-hmm. yeah for you to to try so we're gonna have two of what we already have and two of something we've never tried and uh, a really nice steak dinner and at home and that will be valentine's day don't buy any presents go ahead and put something sappy in a card but that's going to be our valentine's and i i just couldn't be happier uh, I found Red my Valentine that wants to drink brown. Liquor. That is hands uh, off, gentlemen. That is the She's meal of the podcast. Up. Oh, I love her Instagram feed. Busty Bourbon Batch. Uh, yeah, that would be the one. Yeah, yeah. She's she's doing a good job uh, at promoting the different bourbons she likes and loves to put the bottles and the mm-hmm. and the booze and in, in fun circumstances. She so. likes to explore, and I think that's an admirable quality. And she has the gift of written word. I, she can, she makes me laugh every time she makes a good post. So she, does, she, she keeps does it going. Right <laughs> you can hear her voice when you're reading it, which is really good. I think of, of the writers that you know, if you can hear them while you're reading it, it just adds to the experience. Very good, sir. <laughs> All right, let's go. Yeah. Brown news. Brown news. Brown news. I got one or two things that we can talk about tonight. Do you have anything that you want to discuss? No, I, 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 I thought you were going to take over on this one. So I'm excited for the headlines you've chosen. Very well. Lots to talk about. Very well. First headline coming from the Whiskey Advocate. Your whiskey bottles may soon be a little smaller. In the final week of 2020, the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, your buddies, quietly announced it would now accept additional, quote, standards of fill, quote, bottle sizes for spirits. Normally such minutia wouldn't be particularly newsworthy, but one of the newly permitted sizes is stirring excitement among whiskey lovers. Most of the world uses 700 milliliters as its standard spirits bottle size rather than the 750 that's been required in the United States. With 700 milliliter spirits bottles now allowed along with a few other sizes, whiskey drinkers may soon be looking at a wider array of options on the shelf. 700 milliliters is especially relevant to American Scotch fans, raise hand, who have long missed out on rare or highly allocated whiskeys because for many companies, the extra cost of producing and filling a different size bottle wasn't worth it on such a small scale. The article goes on to say that multiple different sizes, uh, Dewar's double range includes 21, 27, and 32-year-old offerings in 375 milliliter bottles, which keeps their pricing within reach of most drinkers. You've got others, of course. You've got uh, Jack Daniels, Old Forester, Woodford Reserve, as well as single malt scotches, Ben Riach, Glendronach, Glenglassau, and Slain Irish Whiskey. I think the rule changes may provide opportunities to bring some previously unavailable whiskeys to the United States audience, which, of course, I view as a good thing. Thoughts? I think it's long due. I, I, I... I, I'm always surprised on things that require regulation and things that don't, right? And this country is completely split. I wouldn't even say split's not even the right word. Completely shattered on how uh, alcohol, spirits, and anything should be treated, how it's distributed, how it's, uh, you know, when, at what time of the day you're allowed to drink and not drink. So 
of course, bottle sizes is something that we have to talk about because it's one of those things that have just been left over for a while, something that needs to be addressed. It was actually very interesting when I went to Buffalo Trace, they talked about all the bottling and the science behind that and how important the bottle is, right? That's your your biggest marketing move is that bottle that's sitting on the shelf comparing you to everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. This we talked about earlier, the Jack Daniels single barrel bottle. This bottle looks far more beautiful than the brown liquor that's sitting inside of it. So <laughs> it's it's important to have that marketing piece, that billboard out there. And <laughs> hey, I have a standard size. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, please don't come after me, Jack. Ah, what are they going to do? Yeah, what you're referring to here is the three-tier system. Yep. Yeah, I was I was a little disappointed in reading about that as well. As I was sifting through the article, um, this change allows us to introduce the majority of our global portfolio into the American market, including brands like the character of Isla Whiskey and Darkness, says Juan Mark Correa, global head sales of Adam Brands. The UK-based company, which focuses on niche spirits, has dipped its toe into the American market through its That Boutique Whiskey Company. We'll be changing the bottle size to become a global standard in due course. So people are okay with this. They want to get multiple different sizes of bottles. Now, I dig the idea of the 375 milliliter bottle myself, because then that allows for a lot more experimentation. You can grab exactly what you need. You know, you just threw down on some wonderful Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey that you're probably not going to drink a lot from now on and it's going to hang out in your cupboard. And if you're not careful, it's going to turn into your guest bottle in which guests come over and go, would you like a drink here? I have a bottle just for you. (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. So since we're talking about sizes of bottles, tell me, are you for or against the minis, the 50 mls? I'm for provided that you can get the good stuff because that's there's a stigma associated with the small ones. It's all usually little plastic bottles and it's usually the lower tier. I would like to be able to get blue label in a 50 mil. I would like to be able to get- but They have it. They have it. It's not easy to find, at least where I'm looking. No, it isn't. So if you can get it, then yeah, absolutely. Because you want a, a really nice drink occasionally. And there is something to having a really nice bottle in your cabinet. But if you nip at it over the course of three years, you know, what happens after you break the seal? Does the whiskey stay the same over the course of three years or does it evaporate or does it get, I don't know. This is the part where maybe you want to jump in, but you were talking about angel. It does evaporate. Yeah, it actually does evaporate. I, in old life, right? I did a lot with uh, 50 mLs and there was a scotch that we had, Belvini, mm-hmm. uh, pronounce it any way you want to. It was, we were one of the only ones that carried that uh, 50 mL. You can't find it in the stores anywhere. Glass bottle, but we used to put them on display uh, around the campus just to show what we had on board. And they, you know, over time, I would probably about once a year have to go replace them because the uh, the liquor would evaporate or somehow disappeared out of it. I don't know. We we always called it the uh, the booze gremlins that would go and take a <laughs> swig out of these little minis and, and it would disappear. But for me, uh, when I the minis are just cute. Everything is that's small is awesome. When I was a kid, micro machines were the coolest damn thing oh, on the planet. 100%. I don't know why. I don't know why. 
you take something that's awesome and you miniaturize it all of a sudden it's more awesome. I don't know how. And I feel the same way about alcohol, especially when you get those really cool bottles. Like it doesn't even matter what type of alcohol, the mini patrons. Mm-hmm. Awesome. You know, those mini skull vodkas. Awesome. And, and, uh, I have a, um, it's not will. I think of the mini that I have, it's a really funky, genie shaped bottle uh it's escaping my mind but amazing cute my little tiny blanton's bottle mm-hmm. oh it's i can't find them anywhere but i love them so to, to piggyback off the story you're bringing up and having different bottle sizes and you know keep an eye out for it i think it's good for people to be aware that maybe you always thought every bottle had the same amount of alcohol in it and just kind of be aware you might be buying less but at the end of the day if it opens up the market and gives us more opportunity to try things that maybe we hadn't tried before because they do smaller runs or they're more boutique as you described or something like that all for it whatever gives us the ability to try things that maybe we hadn't tried before i'm all for it that was the gist of this entire article is the difference in price between 750 and 700 is probably going to be zero so you're going to lose 50 milliliters of liquid, about 6.6%, uh, and pay the same amount. But the idea is, whereas you pay the same for a little bit less of what you know, you now have access to what you didn't know. Because the three-tier system going all the way back to the 1930s is based on, it needs to be 750 milliliter bottles only. So if somebody was very successful in other parts of the world with a bottle that did not have a volume of 750 milliliters, you just couldn't get it because the United States wouldn't let you in. Uh, another of the draconian laws that we've been holding on to for almost 100 years is one of those. You've <laughs> talked about it, the three-tier system. It's just fascinating to me what is left over and what sticks around after all these years, you know, before and after the depression and how they're stretched depending on where you are in the country. I coming from Ohio to California, the two could be farther apart on how they believe that alcohol should be distributed and allocated. Uh, and I really do think the people in Ohio and some of those really uh, restrictive States, they're losing out. They're losing out on some really good stuff because it's such a pain (laughs) to do any business with them. Yeah. Uh, We don't have a, we don't have time to get to our next potential headline, but I'm going to grab one key line that I loved from it. It's about the idea of booze online is getting a lot better because of COVID. So one of the few things that's good about this pandemic is the acceleration of certain stuff. For years, the ability to buy alcohol online in the United States has been constrained. In 1933, when prohibition was repealed, the 21st Amendment broke up the power of bootleggers by dictating that no one party could control producers, distributors, and retailers. To complicate matters further, each state adopted its own version of the so-called three-tier system. To this day, with minor exceptions such as small breweries, distillers, and vineyards, alcohol producers can't connect directly with U.S. consumers but must send their products through separately owned distributors and retailers. That's caused the industry to miss out on the entire direct-to-consumer revolution that's changed the way many brands connect with their customers. I have a few thoughts on the three-tier system, and obviously, time permitting, we'll probably dive into this, and it's probably its own section one night when we talk about it, but here's what I'll say about it. A lot of people missed how revolutionary the Supreme Court ruling was last year when they were talking about 
uh, or when they ruled on wine, right? These direct ship, you have these wine clubs now that will direct ship to you. And, you know, they're basically cutting out the middleman. And what does that mean? Uh, and is that legal? And are the states allowed to make it illegal? And it went all the way up to the top, basically said, Supreme Court said, it's cool, right? So has really kind of kicked down the door of what I hope to see is actual deterioration of the three-tier system. There's good and bad to it, right? It obviously provides jobs. What it also does is it provides uh, a, a control over quality, which I'd hate to see go away. Right. And I'd hate, but I also think that the invisible hand plays a part there too. Right. If, uh-huh. if the quality is bad and it's inconsistent and people are going to go out there and, and get on their Yelp or whatever type of rating system to say, Hey, last bottle was good. This bottle bad. People are going to stay away from it. So you still have checks and balances. I just don't know that you need an entire industry to do it for you. If that makes sense. Okay. Rolling on to headlines. So this one caught my eye and I had to talk about it. So part of your <laughs> Valentine's part of your Valentine's Day meal is going to be some classic red meat hacked away from a four-legged animal with multiple stomachs. And this one that I found right here <laughs> from the New York Post, mind you. So take that with a grain of salt. Uh, behold the 3D printed cruelty-free ribeye steak. New York Cruelty Post. for animals, not for humans, but go ahead. February 9th, New York Post. The burgeoning lab-grown meat industry has made its first foray into fine dining with an artificially forged ribeye steak, a cut that can run hundreds of dollars in some restaurants. This cruelty-free counterpart, however, could go for as low as 50 bucks when it hits dining areas as early as next year, according to the Daily Mail. The new dish created by Israeli food laboratory Aleph Farms marks the world's first 3D bioprinted ribeye made from real cow tissue. Despite the fact that no live animals were hurt or killed in the process, the breakthrough follows the company's initial leap into the lab-grown meat industry in 2018 when they debuted the first ever slaughter-free steak through 3D printing was not used at the time. And so what you get into is the four primary cells that make up meat. Muscle tissue, fat, blood, and support cells create the ink used to print the steak thoughts we are spending our time on the wrong things that being said i i i'm i'm willing to try it why not (laughs) oh there we go hashtag how have we not cured cancer by now (laughs) it's crazy (laughs) That is so advanced. That is, we are getting to the point now, you know, we used to joke about it when we were kids or whatever, watching name your sci-fi show where they push a button and the machine in the box prints out the meal that you want. Mm-hmm. We're almost there. We yeah. are almost there now. Yeah. That's we're badass. from Star Trek. Yep. But uh, I'd, love to try it. I'd love to try it. <clears throat> they anticipate the ribeye could arrive in supermarkets during the next two to three years, pending U.S. Department of Agricultural Inspection and approval. Uh, we expect to achieve this goal within five years from our 2022 launch, which is faster than the new generation of plant-based meat substitutes in a reference to Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, who we talked about last episode. So we have 
meat that's made of non-animal products that's supposed to be exactly like a burger. Then we have lab-grown meat, which is bovine tissue cells in a Petri dish that eventually grows to a mass of you know whatever. You're basically eating a steak amoeba. And then this third one is let's take all that biofilm and all that biotissue and let's squirt it through uh, you know, an injection pen and let's actually print a steak. And you print the steak, you print the fat, you print probably print a little bit of the bone if you want to, but you have all the ingredients necessary to actually 3D print the world. And I thought it was fascinating. You know what it reminds me of? And I'm, I'm not going to knock any chain, but if you go to those big warehouse stores and you go in there and they have these vacuum-packed, pre-made, bacon-wrapped filet mignon, and mm-hmm. you're like, wow, that's a hell of a deal for filet mignon, especially bacon-wrapped. I'm buying it. And then you eat it and you're like, Something, something's wrong here. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if they shredded up some meat and then hard pressed it into the perfect round shape to make work. I don't know how they're done. I'll research it, but that's what I, I get the feeling that it probably tastes like. The only pre-seasoned meat that I would buy is carne asada or the Korean carne asada. Say, you better say carne asada. Well, yeah. The Korean version is bulgogi or bul, bulkobi or there, there's a word for it. I'm, I'm butchering it right now, but any thin flat meat that's marinated in a lot of stuff, that's the stuff that I would buy pre-seasoned because that stuff is not a very good cut of meat anyway. And I, I may make some enemies with that statement, but it's very thin. It's very easy to cook. It's very forgiving because you can, you can undercook it and you can overcook it and it's still good. I would stay away from the pre-seasoned tri-tip at these warehouse stores you're talking about. Cause that to me is danger. Will Robinson stay away. That's old meat. They couldn't sell and they wanted to repackage it. I completely agree with you, but I'm going to go once farther and say that Euro meat is one that I will also go with pre-season, but it is just big pre-season vat of lamb and pepper and deliciousness. Anyway, yeah, Euro, Euro meat, super good. So, Segway on the topic of old meat prepackaged using excellent marketing. Next headline Oldest DNA from poop contains a Neanderthal's microbiome. Hell of a transition. Say that. Hell of a transition. Biologist Marco Kendall <laughs> and his colleagues recently sequenced, <laughs> they recently sequenced ancient microbial DNA from a 50,000-year-old Neanderthal feces found at the El Salt archaeological site in Spain. The sequences included DNA from several of the microbiomes that still call our intestines home, as well as a few that have nearly vanished from today's urban dwellers. According to Candela and his colleagues, their results suggest that the microscopic population of our guts may have been with us since at least 500,000 years ago in the era of our species' last common ancestor, the Neanderthal. The gut bacteria is a thing. You got a regular brain and you got a gut brain. Hashtag science. I have a new goal in life. That is to find a way to fossilize my poop. So somebody finds it hundreds of thousands of years from now <laughs> and wants to know what I ate. And the answer is some kind of printed meat. It looks like they are, they were eating printed meat in 2021. 
based on the fossilized poop of Leon Coventry? Because I'm going to sign. <laughs> I'm going to sign that shit. <laughs> sir, sir, I, I got a fossilized dookie from the 21st century. I don't want to leave any mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's a funny part. Meet some really old friends. Some of these microbes, like the bacterial genus Bifidobacterium, seem to get passed down from mother to child. Others are acquired from the environment or from close contact with others. Those things don't happen much in modern urban settings, as that was true before COVID-19. Scientists who study the human microbiome have noticed that for several generations, certain microbes have been disappearing from the intestines of urban populations in places like the U.S. and Europe. That is mostly thanks to the use of certain medications and disinfectants. A sparkling clean house is, it turns out, a double-edged sword. Bottom line, you need bugs in your gut. I think you're evolving. We're always evolving. We're evolving to the same things that we're dealing with every day, right? So... I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how much I buy into all that. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. Well, Professor Candela knows the most, dramatic, <clears throat> the most dramatic gut microbiome change in our evolutionary history is occurring now in modern industrial societies. Besides underscoring how much biodiversity we're losing in our own guts, the Neanderthal gut microbiome holds some clues about how our extinct cousins lived. This is serious stuff. You need to have clean poop. Is that along the same lines as, you know, there's these parents out there that let their kids, that don't let their kids touch anything, right? If they touch the dirt, they wipe their hands off with, you know, bleach right away and make sure that, you know, no germs come in contact with their child. And then you got like my kid that I don't care if you go roll around and and dog shit, I I don't care. Go have, have fun. And at some point, I feel like the immune system and the gut and everything that I'm feeding and letting my daughter get away with is going to help her in the long run, but it may not. I, I, she may not survive long enough. Uh, There is probably some science to back this up, but I think farm kids typically have better immune systems than city kids because you're out in the dirt and you're engaging with mother nature. You know, you think of the war of the worlds, what brought them down? They got sick. So, you know, let your... is that is that true? Because I would have gone the other way. I would have said that city people have a better immune system because they're around more germs every day. And so your immune system gets better at rejecting them because a farm guy's like the only other person I saw was my cousin and she had the same thing I had. Well, they're not really because you're inside cleaning everything off with bleach. When you're in the farm, you track dirt in the house. You're always outside. You're always working around in dirt and you're always messing around with plant life and insects and all that. You get exposed to a lot more and you get sick a lot more often. So the whole concept of the gut microbiome to me is is kind of fascinating. I think it's been around for a long time, but it's been very closely scrutinized very recently. And I think you got to have you got to have a good gut. Too much sugar ruins your gut. Too much alcohol ruins your gut. Too many painkillers ruins your gut. So you want to have a good flourishing kind of party downstairs in order to be healthy. I'm going to, I'm going to admit something to the audience today and I hope it doesn't burn me, but I started taking probiotics about two years ago and it was a wonderful addition because <laughs> once you creep up in 40, you need that kind of stuff to get to the day. Probiotics. Uh, don't, don't be, be too cool for them. 
No, don't be ashamed. Don't be- Why would you be ashamed of that? I'm not ashamed. Of that. I definitely probiotics, yogurt, pickles, anything that's fermented. Uh, if you're if you're a bok choy or a kimchi fan, if it's pickled or fermented, absolutely go for it. You know, alcohol kills things. That's why we bottle it up and call it isopropyl. Like you don't want to do alcohol per se, because if it gets too strong, it kills things. But yeah, definitely eat fermented foods. Definitely eat yogurt. Um, there's a study that I made a note for, because we're going to talk about it in a future episode. When they did an analysis of people's diets, they found that healthier people lived in like Bulgaria or Romania because yogurt was a key part of their diet. And yogurt is full of probiotics. Don't be ashamed. Take the probiotic. Poop. It is your duty. <laughs> Gut matters. That's what we're saying. It is here. your duty to empty the booty. <laughs> Shit is real. <laughs> These are all great t-shirts or names of bands. Oh, this, we're going to put it on the bottle of Brown Store. You watch. Okay. Last headline of the night. The best 30 comedies of all time in no particular order. I would love to do a top 10. So let's burn through these real quick. Uh, Credit before to the previous article was Ars Technica, February 2021. This one is Esquire Magazine, February 6th, 2021. Animal House, no argument, good. Has to be on there. Lebowski? Has to be on there. No argument, good. Although my wife hates it. What? Yeah. I did so well with her and she just knocked herself down. No Lebowski? (sighs) I'm for it. I think it's absolutely a, deserves to be there. Are, are, what are we on right now? Are we on? Is that is they're not really numbering ranked? it? I think it's I think it's alphabetical. Oh, it's just alphabetical. Yeah. Okay. So uh, make her watch it again. Bridesmaids. All day. Solid. Amazing. Solid. Super bad. Awesome. Solid. It's been a while. I got to watch it again. Solid. This is making yeah. me want to see things again. When Harry met Sally transformational when it came out not that cool anymore i'm gonna put it in the maybe column it's all about the orgasm scene in that one i mean that blew people's minds when it came out that was that was so transformational nothing like that been on there before go on i don't know i've never heard a real one before so i don't know if it was Well, it's written by Nora Ephron and she's she makes good stuff. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and slide it over into the gotta watch it column. And of course, the one that is seminal to our being, Days to Confuse, ladies and gentlemen. Boom. Actually trending on Hulu the other day for some reason. I was like, what? Days of Confused? It just keeps coming back. I love it. Amazing. Coming to America. Keep going. Part two just came out. I can't wait to watch oh, it's coming out in a couple two. weeks. Everything about yep. this movie is vintage. Eddie Murphy before he got angry and Epic. tough and then kind of found his second life as Rudy Ray Moore as Dolomite best in show. You're Christopher guest fan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Shaun of the dead. Absolutely. All day. Okay. Amazing. Mash. The, the movie, movie Mash? the movie that spawned the TV show. I'm not going to say comedy. I'm not going to put it in that. I just didn't think I, I've seen it. I didn't think it was that great. I think you got to go back and see it. Cause it's a lot of, I don't know that it belongs in the comedy. It's along the lines of Stripes. Meatballs. I was just going to say, are you comparing it to Stripes? Speaking of Bill Murray. Great. Napoleon Dynamite. Didn't like it the first time. <gasps> could, didn't really care for it the second time. 
saw it a third time, laughed my head off. It's one of those ones that grows on you. It's weird. It it was slow and weird. I felt awkward. The whole movie that you feel awkward. Yeah. But I'm surprised you didn't like it. I thought it was right up your alley. Uh, the whole Pedro shaving his head, like him being awkward. The whole thing was just slow and awkward, but after a couple of views, especially uncle Rico, I want to throw a football over those mountains. Harold and Maude. Did you ever see Harold and Maude? I did. They, they made me watch it in English class, which is a weird thing. Yeah. 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 Mr. Pappert's big on this movie. So that's, I watched it because of him. Blockers. It was actually really good. I'm so surprised this showed up on here because it was so many people I talked to have never seen it. Awesome. Yeah. It's a sleeper. Yeah, definitely a sleeper. And I love the fact that they put a rooster logo in front of blockers because the ratings bureau wouldn't allow them to say cock blockers because that's the name of the movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Girls trip. There was a scene in Girls Trip where she was going over um, Bourbon Street that part, I was actually really laughing my head off. The rest of it, not so funny for me, but a lot of people really liked it, so I get why it's there. I don't know Regina Hall so well. I know Jada. I love Queen Latifah, and I love Tiffany Haddish, so I should probably schedule some time to see this one. Yeah. Little Miss Sunshine. I can't, I can't put it there. I think it's questionable on the comedy scale. Yeah. Breakfast Club. For a comedy, I don't know. For one of the top three movies of my life Vault and transformational, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I just don't I mean, know if the category is right for it. It's kind of at the top of coming-of-age stories, not necessarily comedy per se. Right. Yeah, dramedy they listed as, yeah, because you and I could probably say this movie verbatim. That's right. Clue. Great movie. Good one. Classic. Yep. The Birdcage. It's a good movie. Yeah. I don't know that I would put it in my top 20. I don't know where this falls, but okay. Solid Robin Williams, not allowed to be Robin Williams movie. Mm-hmm. This, this is one of those movies where you realize that he's actually a really good actor. Well, and at the time it was kind of edgy because although being gay, flamboyantly gay was a thing, it wasn't mainstream. You know, it's kind of like Brokeback was a very transformational movie. This was kind of edgy. It was right on the edge and people were like, "Ah." it seems to me that this was the first portrayal of boring gay parents. Like normally when you think of gay people, you think of the feathers and the flamboyance and the makeup and the drag queens and all that. But, you know, being married is being married, whether you're gay or not. It's you get old and you get boring. Mm hmm. Look. We're taking too much time here. Let's fly through. Well, I have to pause. Take some special time for Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, how is this the next one? This is the number one movie of all time for comedy. <laughs> and if anyone doesn't believe that, watch it with me. Can you argue, Danny? Can no, you argue? No, you laughing is half the movie. Because people don't get the humor. They they totally it went over their head. No, I get and I'm the laughing. Humor. Like, it's very dry and very British, but you cackling and not being able to breathe is half the experience. <laughs> oh my god, it's so good! It's so good. Okay. Pass. <laughs> 
I can't. I'll do every line in the whole movie. Okay, I can't. Right. I can't start do, on it. We don't have enough time. Well, all right, lightning round. Some like lightning it round. Tony Curtis. Never Jeff saw Lemon. it. Never saw it. Okay. Never saw it. Ghostbusters. Great movie. Solid. Deserves to be there. Rushmore. Nope. Didn't see it. Nope. Didn't Angels. like it. Love it. How far Lindsay Lohan has fallen. Mm. Airplane. All day. Teflon. All day. Teflon. Absolutely. Amazing. House party. Uh, cult classic, I guess. I'm working on the dance with my five-year-old and he's almost there. <laughs> Drum roll. Office space. It had to be there. It had to be there. Office space. There's nothing that you need to say there. Anyone who disagrees, stop listening to this podcast. You know, you will never get our humor. <laughs> oh, Friday. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you every line in that movie. I can get fired on a day off. <laughs> every time I'm in the kitchen. There's so many you good lines in that movie. <laughs> ah, a classic. Duck soup. Never saw it, but I've seen clips of it because it is a classic. Dr. Strangelove. Never saw it. Yeah, it's good. It's it's a film class movie. You got to see it in terms of being, a, if you're a fan of movies, you have to see it. But I don't know that I would. Yeah, I guess it's a comedy. Uh, it's it's known for one of the most famous, com one of the famous lines in movie history. Gentlemen, no fighting in the war room. <laughs> and that closes out our 30. 30 best comedies of all time, according to Esquire magazine. Now, what's missing? And I can tell you right now. Do it. For me, Anchorman is missing. Oh, I don't know how you not have that on there. 100%. Yeah, in fact, I would trade one of those for you, Anchorman. Top 30, I, I mean, it's got to be on there. For reals. All right, let's finish up with our parenting segment. What do you got? I got another top 10, because who doesn't love those? And as a parent, so Danny and I have... Uh, got a good friend of ours, a uh, friend of the show as well that has has uh, has been on as well, and about to have a a son. So we're all very happy for him the and their family. And one thing that I uh, we've got this feed going, we're we're always contributing advice because that's well, when Mr. you go Jones. through. Yeah, Mr. Jones. Yeah, is Mr. Jones. Show. Yeah, when we go through battles with our children and whether we succeed or we fail and we realize we went wrong, can't help but share that with every other parent in hopes that they will not make the same mistake. It's all part of that give backstage that we talked about a couple, couple episodes ago. So when I look at these lists, I always can't help. The best advice I ever heard from anyone was you're going to have to be your own parent. Nobody can tell you how to be one. Right. So with that being said, and that being my, my overall philosophy on being a parent. I'm going to go through this list here. Do it. So what makes a good parent? And this is from parentingforthebrain.com. And really where they open up with this, this whole list is a good parent doesn't have to be perfect. No one's perfect. No child is perfect either. Keeping this in mind is important when we set our expectations. So this is the top 10 list. And I'd love to hear your comments. I clearly have my internal dialogue going like crazy when I read it. Number one, be a good role model. Yep. That gets really do as I say, not as I do thing, right? That doesn't work ever. 
So be a good role model. Well, they're always watching. No, they're, they're always watching. And in fact, you model everything that you do in life on the person you spend the most time with and it's your parents. So when you start to see your kids doing things that you do and you don't like what your kids are doing, look in the mirror because they're doing what you're doing. They didn't get it from anywhere else. They got it from you. So absolutely be a role model. Love it. Number two, love them and show them through action. 100%. Hug them. My daughter actually actually said to me, look them in the eye. Yep. And and she catches me on it all the time too. Sometimes, uh, you know, she'll rip my heart out because she's like, Hey, I thought you were here for me, not for this. (laughs) Holy (laughs) hell. She's right. Oh, she's, she's absolutely right. Oh, she will just rip your heart out and throw it on the ground. Yeah, an All hour, right. an hour of distracted dad looking at his phone is less valuable than five minutes of undivided attention. Put it down. Yeah. Make eye contact with down. the kid. Let them finish their thought. If they're stuttering or they can't get the words right or they can't figure out what they're trying to say, they know what they want to say. They just can't say it. Sit and wait and shut up. That is gold. And you know what? The fact that she wants to spend any time with me whatsoever, I'm going to, I'm going to capitalize because I know that I'm as unlimited. Hot day. Number, number three, practice kind and firm, positive parenting. That's what an interesting one. It should always be kind. Firm, I think, is a relative concept. Uh, when when you tell them to do something, you obviously they they need to follow. It's there. There needs to be a hierarchy. This is not a democracy. Kind, I think, is the more important of the two, which is why I'm glad it's first. You you definitely want to teach your children that there are better ways to get through life. So you always want to be kind. Firm really depends on the situation. I think. Is it involving safety? No question. They have to do it. But if they want to talk about it first, you can probably be a little flexible. Well, I'll tell you, if this was a four-hour show, I'd read everything they have to say about this specific dot. But one interesting paragraph that came out in this said, give your child negative experiences. They won't have the kind of development necessary for them to survive. And I think there's something to that. There's a lot of parents that try so hard to minimize or almost even eliminate negative experiences. And it's such an important developmental piece of their life. It's okay to be disappointed. It's okay to be sad. Those are emotions you're going to feel. It doesn't matter if you're one years old, three years, or 40. You're going to get them. You better start learning how to deal with it now. Well, they need to, they need to get it in an environment that's safe. So that they know what it feels like. Yeah, 100%. Well, you haven't read this list, but you are a great transitioner. Number four, be a safe haven for your child. Yep. In there, I believe that. And I catch myself sometimes not being that. They have to feel comfortable and safe. And after everything that's happened, I can still snuggle up on my mom or dad and everything will be okay. They need to know that after you bark, there's an explanation. They need to know that there's a reason, even if if you're grumpy that day or you growl at them, they need to know that there's a reason behind it. Because if you're just yelling to yell and you don't tell them why, that crushes their entire world. 
So yes, it has to be a safe space. And you got to get it right because I know we both get along with our parents pretty well right now. And that's, that's a relationship I hope to have at some point. And if you're having a tough day or a tough experience, I know you reach out to your mom and your dad and, 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 and bounce some ideas off of them. Right. Yep. And the ones that don't have that relationship, they got that one wrong. Right. Because if you don't feel safe to have those type of conversations or reach out to your parent, especially when you know that you messed up yourself, uh, you're in a bad spot. So you, you gotta let people fail and then talk through the failures. You know, talk, you know, let your kids fail and talk through it. It's your okay. kids gotta be able to come to you. Absolutely. That's right. All right. We're on number six already. Here we go. Reflect on your own childhood. That's pretty easy to do. I think everybody does that anyway. What would I do? What did I do when I was a kid? What did I find fun when I was a kid? You can't help but try to recreate it with your kids. Yes. The second part is make sure your children don't have to experience what you remember is traumatic. They're going to have their own. You know, they don't need your help. So let them, let them make their own mistakes. Let them, let them find their own insecurities. Let them have those experiences on their own. You don't want them to have the ones that you know about. So protect them from those because they're going to have their own anyway. Worst thing that can happen is they have yours and theirs. Mr. Paul, that was profound. Let's see here. Pay attention. Number seven is pay attention to your own well-being. Big time. Big time. Good, good friend of mine in Ohio had two daughters. This is before I had a kid. And one of his advice, one thing I was really impressed by him is that he always found a way to make time for him and his wife to go out and do things. Mm-hmm. and or for him to go do what he needed to do or let not let let is not the right word but uh promote his partner his wife doing what she liked to do because we all need it we all need closeness we all need to be a family but we all also need our own time and it's important that you take that time what are you thinking about coming from the aviation industry you should know put your own mask on first Nice. So put true. Your own, put your own mask on first so that you can help others. If you, if you don't, you're smoked. If you're having a bad day, um, I, I want to say that Bide used to say to us, wipe your feet at the door, right? Wipe your feet at the door. Don't bring your outside problems inside. <laughs> I <remember that. laughs> and I, I think it's so true. Don't bring your crappy day at work or the crappy conversation you just had with a cable company into your parenting style. You're here to do a job and your job is to be a parent. Leave, leave your drama at the door. Yeah. Controversial number. Do not spank no matter what. That's what number eight is. There are plenty of ways to belittle and frighten a child that don't involve violence, that don't involve teaching them that violence is okay. Um, Sometimes a stare gets more done than a spank. Sometimes clipping them down from a green to an orange on a color chart is way more effective 
than spanking. Sometimes counting to three and just the anticipation of the next number. You know, thrillers are a movie category for a reason. It's because the anticipation of the event is scarier than the event itself. So if you as a parent think that spanking gets the job done when you can instead find other ways to instill fear, yeah, I, I, controversial perhaps. Uh, but really, there isn't any reason that I can think of uh, to hit your kids, at least have not you ever spanked, Have you ever spanked your kids? I have to think of if there was some extreme defiance after I've gone to every length to try all of the other arrows in my quiver, I might have whacked them in the butt. But that's it. Like, I don't want to give my children the idea that violence is okay because they're going to go do it to somebody else. No, I get and I understand that stance. I have done it and I haven't done it because this means that I've done it because of a correction. And that age group between three and five, you get a lot of tantrums. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's really hard to snap them out of it. You're trying to figure out what's going to work. And I will tell you that I've gone to extreme lengths to try to figure out how to snap them out of that tantrum. I've tried, you go in this room, this dark room and cool off, right? I've tried, you know, compromise. I've tried conversations. I've tried hugs and love. I've tried spanking anything to snap them out of it because that's where you really need to go. They start going down that dark road and you got to rope them back in and bring them back out. Other than that, to say that this equals a spank, I'm not a big fan of that. But if you're looking for a quick attitude adjustment or a flip, I understand why it happens. It's happened to me. Uh, I wish, and every time I've ever done it, and I'm talking, it's I could count it on less, less than half a hand, probably on the times that I've done it. It's an immediate regret. Yeah. And so, um, but also at the same time, you're, you get desperate sometimes to snap them out of it because they could hurt themselves too. And what do you do? You know, so I, I think parents have to do what they have to do. And what happens behind closed doors is nobody's business where this becomes controversial and becomes a problem. If that's your first go-to, if your first go-to is yelling at the kid or spanking them, you, you got some things that you got to analyze. I also want to parse it out. There's an aggressive good game versus I'm going to violently hit you now under the guise of punishing you. There right, I, want to, to, I want you to feel this. Yeah, there, there are ways to motivate your children in terms of get upstairs and put your pajamas on where you might whack them a little bit more than you would, but it's not I'm spanking you right now. So spanking is like when, when, when I think of what I think the article is referring to is when you put them over your lap and you whack them or you grab their arm so that they're immobile and you whack them. But if you're not happy with them and they're running by you and you want to add a little emphasis, some parentheses on, on why you're not happy with them, that to me is not a spank. Uh, but again, as long as it's a last resort after all efforts, uh, efforts at diplomacy and psychology are gone. Yeah. At some point, the little children are emotional beings. They haven't, they haven't come to figure out what logic is yet. At some point, you do have to kick them out of it and go, hey, pay attention. All right, I'm going to cue you up for the OK Boomer response. And that would be, I got my butt beat and I turned out fine. Yeah. I mean, that's... <laughs> if you think it's all right to beat a child, you're not fine. <laughs> 
Okay, boomer. I'm ready for, All right, I'm next ready one. for the okay boomer on that one. Why hitting kids is normal. No, it isn't, man. I got I got my butt beat. Look at I look it turned out. You know? Okay. All right, number nine. Or was that number nine? That was number nine. Oh no, keeping me, things. Gonna, hold on, time out, time out before let's do nine and a half. Nine and a half. All right. Out of four, maybe five books that I've read on child psychology and what it is to raise a child. The number one thing that little kids hate is boredom. If you can introduce boredom, that is torture to a little mind. Boredom, <laughs> better than spanking. Boredom, is, <laughs> boredom is walking on spikes. Boredom is the Chinese water torture. Boredom is the single most awful, horrendous, scary thing ever to the mind of a kid that's under seven years old. So if you have to resort to striking the child because you can't get your shit together, it's because you're not introducing enough boredom. Make them sit in a chair and stare at the wall and you'll see how their skin crawls. That is a lot more effective than striking a kid. So that's how yeah. spanking I'll that is lazy. And a half. I'm with you. All right. So actually that was number eight. Number nine is keep things in perspective and remember your parenting goal. You know what? That's what we've been talking about, right? Pretty much, so, yeah. We can move on from that one. And number 10, again, this is from parentingforthebrain.com, is take a shortcut by utilizing findings in the latest psychology and neuroscience research. That's all your books. Lame. Right? Lame. Right? That's okay, everything. So top Go- nine. Awesome. Yeah, top nine is pretty good. So, yeah. So, all of you should be better parents now. <laughs> You're welcome. All right, brother. Sounds good. This has been your Brown Bulletin for Saturday, the 13th of February. I'm your host, Danny Paul. Along with me is the vice host, Leon Coventry. Leon? Drink it. Damn it. We'll see you next time. Same bottle, same glass. Love you lots. (laughs) See ya. This place is dead anyway, man.